Hey guys, I wanted to drop a quick note before this episode starts to let you know that I'll be hosting a free eating disorder recovery panel discussion and Q&A on May 26th with a few of my favorite eating disorder recovery professionals. These professionals include recovery coach Mia Finlay, eating disorder dietitian Christina Johnson, and body liberation therapist Danny Bryant. This is truly a trifecta of recovery knowledge, and you don't want to miss out on it. So please sign up using the Eventbrite link in the show notes. And with that, I look forward to seeing you very soon at this week's free recovery event where you can get all of your burning recovery questions answered. You're listening to the Full and Thriving Podcast, a place where courageous women come to break free from food obsession, heal their relationship with their body, and strive to live a life that's present, lighthearted, and meaningful. If you're listening, my wish is that this podcast serves as a catalyst that inspires you to nourish your body, nurture your mind, and energize your spirit. I'm your host, Meg McCabe, a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Today's guest is Alyssa Rumsey. Alyssa is a registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, food and body liberation coach, and the author of the amazing book, Unapologetic Eating. Alyssa helps people get free of the shame and pain of chronic dieting so they can live their most unapologetic, liberated lives. In this episode, Alyssa and I bring it back to the basics and talk why diets don't work and why dieting is harmful to our overall health. Together, we talk about reclaiming health and beauty standards and defining what works best for you. As always, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. And with that, I hope you enjoy my discussion with Alyssa. Hello, Alyssa. How are you? Hi, I am doing well. I'm happy to be here today. I'm so happy you're here too. Thank you so much for joining me. Of course, of course. Awesome. So Alyssa, I wanted to talk to you about your background. Could you please share with all of us how you became the person you are today? Sure, sure. What's the short version or shorter version of that story? Well, I guess I can start with, I became interested in nutrition in high school and it was born out of what I now see as disordered eating. I didn't realize it at the time. I, as a kid, lived in a pretty like average size body and didn't really get any comments about my body size and like didn't think about food or what I ate at all until high school. And I had been playing basketball and I stopped playing basketball, which also like happened to coincide with when I was going through puberty. And started gaining again, what I now know is very normal weight gain that happens to people during puberty, but I panicked and my body was changing. And especially during that time, you know, peers being really important and like how you look feeling really important. And I went on my first diet in high school and then, yeah, I ended up actually I was in a biology class and we were learning about digestion. And I was like, oh, this is like really fascinating. 
But I also found it fascinating, I think, because I was dieting and this was the early 2000s when it wasn't really a thing. Like none of my friends were dieting. And so I was having this identity. I was like starting to get this identity of being like the healthy one. And like people would comment on my food and I'd be like so proud that I was eating quote healthy. So it started to involve my identity. And then I was applying for college and heard that there was this thing called a dietitian where you could help other people with this. And I was like, oh, cool. Let me do this. And so, yeah, that was really what my disordered eating, you know, dieting turned into disordered eating in the sense of restrict and just like thinking about it a lot, you know, my day and different plans sort of revolving around, like thinking about what I was going to be eating and things like that. And yeah, that continued throughout college and into my twenties. And then after college, I actually ended up working at a hospital in the ICU. So that I think unbeknownst to me kind of started healing my relationship with food. I think if I had gone into an outpatient or doing something with like weight loss, like that would have probably made it worse, but I was working in an intensive care unit. So that type of nutrition is very different. I was also, I was living in New York city, in my early twenties was working with people who are all around my same age and everybody had a pretty healthy relationship with food in New York city, as you know, has like amazing restaurants. And I was just like loving, like exploring that. And so just slowly, like over the years in my twenties, like it started to kind of become less of a brain space thing. And then it honestly, it wasn't until six years ago that I discovered intuitive eating and more of a weight inclusive or non-diet approach. So at that point I had been working, I left in the hospital to start my own private practice and had been doing like weight loss type counseling, but from mindful eating perspective. And then I started learning about intuitive eating and I was just like, whoa, A makes so much sense. Like personally, my own personal experience, intellectually, it makes sense. Scientifically, it makes sense. And when I look at my clients and see their trajectory of losing weight, gaining weight, losing weight, gaining weight, like it working for a bit, then not also made so much sense. And that really started the last six years, which has just been unlearning and then like relearning and learning a lot about not just intuitive eating, but then like health at every size approach, really the like social justice underpinnings of all of this and the different systems of oppression and how they relate to diet culture as we know it. And yeah, so that was a huge turning point for me professionally. You know, at that point, my relationship with food was, I think I was eating pretty intuitively at that point. Sure. There was like little things that you just are kind of become ingrained. And then it's like, why have I not had Pop-Tarts in five years? I used to love these. <laughs> I mean, that was something like two summers ago, just rediscovering Pop-Tarts. Wait, why have I not bought Pop-Tarts? These like little pieces of diet culture that can hang on. And then I think personally too, like really finding this space and this community and understanding. I have a thin body, so I have a lot of, of body privilege, but also just with aging and beauty. And I mentioned before, like my identity had been wrapped up in being this like healthy person. And so just really having the space and having the words and like understanding of unpacking more of that and just playing with different things myself. Like I stopped wearing makeup a couple of years ago and woof, that was like a long process where it like slowly started like doing it less and less. And now it's to the point, like I do wear it occasionally, but I don't feel any different with or without it where it used to be like, if I didn't have makeup on, I like 
didn't feel done. Like I just was like, no, I can't go to dinner. Like, you know, that type of thing. And like the aging process has let me question a lot of these things, like these quote unquote norms that we take as, oh, this is just the way things are. I love that you bring up things like aging and makeup. Those are things that I don't bring up too much on this podcast, but they're so connected into diet culture and the beauty standards that we're all really trapped in and grow up with. The makeup thing was huge for me too. I still wear makeup once in a while, but moving to Denver helps. So nobody wears makeup here. You wear makeup. They're all just kind of like, what who are you trying to impress? Didn't you just go on a hike earlier? <laughs> yeah. Whereas New York can be like the opposite, depending on, depending on your community and who you're hanging out with, but mm-hmm. it's definitely mm-hmm. like a, a dress to impress kind of thing. And yeah. Yeah. But it is all related, right? Cause when we think about diet culture and we think about trying to shrink our bodies and this was like a huge turning point for me was also realizing that, yeah, these different like systems of oppression, these different like groups of people in power, mainly like men, and white men, they remain in power when women are kept and non-binary folks are kept like out of their power and are kept like trying to chase these different beauty and body ideals and spending a lot of like time and money and energy. And this is not to say that you can't wear makeup, right? Like, a lot of people love wearing makeup. And I think, but is wearing makeup for me, it was like so linked to how I felt about myself. And if I didn't have makeup on, then I just didn't feel like myself. And it was like very powerful for me to get to a point where I can wear makeup. I can not wear makeup. Oh my God, it saved me a lot of time to not wear makeup for sure. And wear my hair naturally curly where I always spent so much time straightening it. And yeah, just these different things and really like making the decision, like knowing where some of these beauty ideals and body ideals came from, and then being able to make the decision for yourself do I want to do this or am I doing it? Because I think I should. And they're sure, like I just spoke at a conference. I put on a full face of makeup and did my hair up and put on a dress and, you know, stuff like that, like totally fine. Right. But I could have also gotten up there and not done that and still felt okay with my, in my like sense of self. Mm -hmm. That's why I do love the field we're in because there's such a level of body acceptance that isn't in every field. Right. So if you showed up in Without makeup, people are like going to support you no matter what. And it's funny because I sometimes I feel like I live in this body acceptance bubble. And then when I go to other areas in life, I'm like, wow, okay, this is still not everyone's life. For sure. For sure. And again, I think it's important to like be very clear. Like I can show up without makeup because I still fit into society's quote unquote, like ideal body or looks, right? Mm -hmm. Even though I am aging, it's like, I still, as a white woman, and I do have like pretty privilege as well. I was just talking about that with someone actually. I mean, I'm thinking of like a client of mine who's a person of color, right? And if they were to go to work without makeup or with their hair, like natural, they would be seen as unprofessional. And there's penalties for that, right? There's a study that I mentioned in my book that Blew my mind and also not surprising, but horrifying where women who are less quote, well-groomed make less money than women who are well-groomed. And then of course, needless to say for men, grooming does not play into their salaries at all. So these are very real things that like we talk about like oppression, right? That is oppressing people for not living up to some made up standard. And yeah, so I think I a hundred percent like recognize the privilege of working for myself, of having a lot of body privilege in playing with these things. I'm also thinking of a client of mine who works at a law firm 
And she's been playing with some of this too. And she's also really worried about like retaliation of not being given cases or not being taken as seriously if she doesn't look the part, which is probably very real, unfortunately. So yeah, I think that you can take all of those things into account, but just the process of being becoming aware of some of these things is really powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It can go so beyond not just dieting, but it goes beyond dieting and the oppressive systems. Like it's really useful to take a look at your life and see how have these systems impacted my behavior, my thoughts about myself, my feelings, the way I treat other people, all of that, the way I see other people, it's really important. So I appreciate that kind of tangent about makeup and beauty because so it's helpful to talk about as well. But I did want to bring it back to dieting because that's what we're talking about today. And I loved at the beginning of your book, how you talked about the definition of diet and how it's actually been co-opted by the diet industry and diet culture. And I'd love for you to share a little bit about that. And also talk about how you define dieting. Sure. Sure. So yeah, I mean, historically the word diet has been used to describe like what a person eats, right? Not positive, not negative, just more of a neutral, what a person eats. And it's been co-opted and really transformed by the dieting industry. And now I think if most people think of the word diet, like if you were to take a poll and ask people here, the word diet, what do you think? It usually is now the absence of eating something. So like taking something out of your diet, right? That's restricting, removing food groups, eating less food. And technically it's a neutral descriptor. The way that it's used in our society is like anything but neutral and usually is also linked to restriction, to food rules and to weight loss or to like attempting to lose weight. So I think, yeah, it's really interesting to think about that. And then when I use the word diet, I really define that as, again, could be this neutral word, but how, when we're talking about like diet culture and the dieting industry, when I'm talking about that, I'm talking about really anything, any person, anyone who is dictating what you eat. So more what you eat, how much you eat, when you eat being dictated from something outside of you. So by this definition, then we can see the word diet, not just be Yes, like South Beach diet, Jenny Craig, Atkins diet, but also like macro counting or counting points or like measuring food or counting calories, you know, all of these things can be seen as dieting because it's really a disconnection from your own body cues and instead following like this external way of eating. The other thing that typically we'll have in common with these diets is that they are either overtly marketed or like covertly marketed as a way to manipulate your body size and your appearance. So for example, can I name a dieting company? Is that okay? Okay, cool. Um, So Noom, the one we all love to hate, Noom markets itself as this like intuitive eating, like non-diet approach, right? But then if you are to download Noom and you fill out a profile, what does it immediately ask? how tall you are, how much you weigh and what your goal weight is. And then it calorie restricts you. (laughs) So people, and it's so effing sneaky 
because people, they're co-opting a lot of the anti-diet language, a lot of the intuitive eating language, and people are signing up thinking that that's, oh, this is going to be better because this is not a diet. When in reality, they're doing the same, like red, yellow, green, judging your food choices. They're restricting your calories. Like it's literally the same. And I do get more mad at them than I do for someone who's like Jenny Craig is like hundred percent. We're a weight loss diet, right? Like it's very out front. So that's, you know, what we're seeing Christy Harrison calls it the, the wellness diet, this kind of co-opting by the wellness industry of not the traditional necessarily like calorie counting, but it's still really at the end of the day ends up being about weight loss, even if they are trying to say it's not. Mm. Yes. It's so sneaky and deceptive. And I can't stand that. Even the word body positivity has been co-opted. The same thing you see influencers who are just all about the gym and showing their quote unquote, perfect body, perfect diet. And then saying it's all in the name of body positivity which is also really damaging and harmful. So yeah. Yeah, totally. Right. Because body positivity, for those listening who might not know, body positivity, that movement was started, it came out of the racial justice movements of the 60s and was started as a community for fat people. Mm -hmm. Um, And now it has been completely just co-opted by thin people of accepting my roles and stuff like this when yes, right? great. We do want body acceptance is like for everybody. And as a thin person, I can struggle with my body image hundred percent. I did for many years, but I was never oppressed because of the size of my body. Right. So I wasn't paid less money. I didn't get, um, I didn't have an issue getting access to insurance or life insurance. I could walk into a store and buy anything off the rack. I could go to the doctor's office and have them actually treat whatever was wrong with me and not just tell me to lose weight. Right. So there is a difference. And that's where we really do see an issue with the co-opting because fat people are still oppressed in our society. And if then people keep taking these spaces that were meant to be like safe spaces for fat people to be in community with one another, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So helpful to keep reminding people about that because there's a true version of these words. And then there's a co-opted version and it gets a little messy. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could share a little bit about the science behind diets don't work just for those who are listening, who might be really stuck with that morality thing where, you know, diets mean I'm healthy and I'm a good person. And when you're stuck on that, you sometimes overlook that dieting actually isn't always the answer. Yeah. I mean, certainly our culture and the dieting industry has really made people feel like if they can't stick to a diet or if they gain the weight back, then it's the person's fault. It's never the diet's fault. It's like the person's fault. Like I Mm -hmm. failed. I didn't have enough willpower. I didn't have control. Like it's my fault. And so so many people have so much shame about that, of not being able to keep their weight down, of not being able to eat quote unquote healthy or to stick to the diet, quote unquote. And yeah, in reality, like if you look at the science and look at just biologically how our bodies work, it has nothing to do with an individual person's willpower. It has everything to do with how our bodies are wired and our bodies, like the human body is wired for survival. And if you think about most of the vast majority of 
human life existence on this earth to this point has been where starvation was like almost always there, right? There was always this threat of starvation. And now for those of us who are privileged enough to be food secure, that's not really a thing, right? Like I don't have to be worried about starving anymore. However, our bodies biologically and like genetically are still wired from thousands and thousands of years ago when food was really scarce. And when our body did have to pull out all these stops to like try to keep us alive when there was times of like famine or in the middle of winter or, you know, things like that. And so even though that might not be the case for us now, it might be like, okay, I'm surrounded by food. I have so much food in my house. I have two grocery stores within a five minute walk living in New York city that will do it. My body doesn't know that. And so what happens is that when we restrict calories or cut out certain food groups or cut back on the amount of food we're eating, the message that our body gets is that you're starving or that starvation is coming. And so what it does is it switches into the survival mode. So again, it does not matter if you're surrounded by like enough food to feed you for weeks, restriction, or even any like threat of restriction. So people are like, oh, I'll start over on Monday, right? So like the message your body is getting if starvation's coming on Monday, better get it in now, right? And so what happens biologically when our body senses is starvation or, or potential starvation, it tries to do everything it can to keep you alive. So it decreases your metabolic rate. That's the number of calories your body needs every day to just stay alive. So it decreases your metabolic rate because it's, oh, you're going to be getting less calories. I'll make it so you can survive with less thyroid activity will, can decrease. Thyroid's also involved in our metabolism regulation. It decreases levels of fullness hormones and increases levels of hunger hormones. So that means you're more hungry and takes longer to get full. And it also increases your cravings for calorie dense foods. Because if you think Mm -hmm. if there really was a famine coming, what would we need? We need to eat as much food as we could. We need to eat really calorie dense food, right? That wasn't a lot of volume, but those like high sugar, high fat things that we crave. So again, like you can't willpower your way out of this. This is how your body responds when there is either like actual restriction or like I mentioned, that kind of like threat of restriction of, oh, I'll start the diet on Monday. That's Evelyn Triboli and Elise Raish in their book, Intuitive Eating, call it like the last supper effect. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, people, I hear this all the time where they're like, okay, I'm going to be better next week or be better tomorrow or whatever it is. And then end up just like flying off the handle and like eating all sorts of things and feeling really uncomfortable because that's literally a response to the upcoming restriction of let me get it all in now. Cause I'm not going to be able to eat it then. I love that phrase, the last supper phenomenon. <laughs> yeah. I definitely remember having an eating disorder and when I had that permission, like for instance, I, my swim team had pasta parties and I kind of had that last supper mentality whenever we had those. Cause I was like, oh, because I'm allowed to do this, but then it's back to intense restriction after, right. which is right. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. So thank you for providing kind of that science behind that. So there's also this notion out there and it's true that the majority of people who end up losing weight on diets end up gaining that back and actually regaining more than what they originally lost. And I was hoping you could speak to that a little bit as well. 
Yes. So that is called weight cycling, or you sometimes hear it referred to as yo-yo dieting, this like up and down with your weight. And again, most people blame that on themselves. Like I couldn't stick to the diet and then I gained this weight back. But again, it's biological. Like that's your body trying to keep you alive. And what ends up happening when we look in the short term, sure, diets work if we're looking at weight loss. Short term, they work. Long term, they do not. And like any diet, you take it out long enough, like when you're looking like one, two, three, four, five years, what we see is that the vast majority, like 90 to 95 plus, regain back the weight that they lost. Now, about two thirds of people regain more back Mm. or gain more back. So they end up at a higher weight than they started at before their diet. And this is again, the body protecting against future starvation. So it's, oh, let me give you a little buffer because this might happen again. And let's have a buffer. Because again, we're thinking, keeping ourselves alive in times of famine, having a buffer would be really helpful. And then what happens is that the more dieting attempts someone has tends to correlate with their weight being even higher. And that is something, there was a review of a couple dozen studies that showed that the more attempts of dieting someone had had, the more weight gain they had actually. And yeah, then when we look at health risks too, so weight cycling that like up and down that almost everybody who diets, like if you diet, you are more likely than not to weight cycle. Weight cycling itself is what we call an independent risk factor for a whole host of chronic diseases. So meaning that you take two people of the same weight, one person has always been this weight, let's say it's 200 pounds. One person's always been 200 pounds. The other person has been like up and down between 120 and 200 and they've gone up and down, up and down. That person who's gone up and down has a much higher risk of things like heart disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, chronic inflammation, certain forms of cancer, and even death. So we see higher mortality rates in people who've weight cycled. And again, this is controlled for a lot of factors. So this means that that itself is like the weight cycling is causing a lot of these things. So yeah, it's really not only does it not help folks to lose weight in the long run, but it's also really harmful for our health too. Yeah. And it's so interesting such a bummer at the same time. Cause I know so many people who go on diets who are dieting to avoid all of these stigmatized consequences of living in a larger body. I have a friend in mind, obviously, but she will say I'm doing this because I'm afraid of diabetes or I see all these health risks. And what you're saying is the yo-yo dieting actually is the increased risk for those health consequences. Yeah. And you're right. You know, that is the mainstream kind of message that we get is that higher weights mean you're at higher risk of these diseases. And yes, there is a correlation, meaning that people at higher weights are more likely to have these certain diseases, but there is nothing, there is no research to show causation. So Mm -hmm. it's not that the higher weight causes diabetes or causes high blood pressure, but rather what is causing both of those things? What's causing the higher weight and what's causing the the high blood pressure? And so there's a lot of research to suggest that most of the differences in outcomes we see like between BMI classes has more to do with weight cycling and with weight stigma. And associated with weight stigma is the worse healthcare that people who are in larger bodies get. So those are the things that actually are impacting our disease risk or some of the things that are impacting our disease risk, not actually the weight itself. 
Mm-hmm. When I heard you speaking to this also, when I think of high blood pressure, I also think about stress. And is there any research out there about the mental health consequences of weight cycling? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Such a great question. But so yes, weight cycling and also dieting is associated with things like food and body preoccupation, which can definitely be a lot more stress, right? Like the number one thing that people tell me is that just so much of their brain space is taken up Mm -hmm. thinking about food, thinking about their body, worrying about those things definitely correlated with higher rates of anxiety and with lower self-esteem too. And that is the other thing about this focus on dieting and specifically like dieting for weight loss, it takes away from the things that really matter and really do impact our health, you know, on the individual behavior front that can be stress and anxiety that has like a much bigger impact on our body and on our our risk of developing certain diseases, but also the different socioeconomic factors that are even, that are way more related to our health and disease risk than our individual behaviors. So this is why I think you know, if we really zoom out, like you, most people you say, okay, what does being healthy mean? It's like, oh, losing weight, eating better, exercising more. And like the food and exercise, yes, they do have an impact on our health, but like way less than we've been led to believe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's the immediate thing I've heard people in my world say when they think of health, it's weight loss. It's having this certain size. It's looking this certain way usually totally disregarding all the other components of health. And that's why I think it's so important that when you are in recovery from an eating disorder or trying to break free from dieting, you take a moment to redefine what health means to you and reclaim that word and incorporate those components like mental health, spiritual health, financial health, all of those things that we were just, Distracted from because of the intention of dieting. A hundred percent. I was just having a conversation with someone today about that because yeah, they've been so focused for the last like decade plus on dieting and weight loss. And they were literally like crying on this call to me because just like so evident how much this has impacted their mental and emotional health in a negative way. And yeah, I think if we zoom out and it's okay, what does health really mean if we're going to like define it for ourselves? And sure, that could be physical health, but also all the different things that you said too. And what does that look like? And I think too, like also thinking about healthism, right? Because certainly in our culture, there's also just as we have like morality with food, there's also this morality with health. And if you're healthy or if you're trying to be healthy, then you're a good person and you're like doing what you're supposed to. But if you're quote unhealthy, whatever that means, or seemingly not trying to be healthier, then something is wrong with you. So yeah, I think we have to really take that out of the equation because like a person's health, just like they're same with their weight, has nothing to do with their value or their worth like in this world. But yet those are the messages that we often get. So for a lot of people, there's a lot of shame wrapped up in not wanting to take medication for blood pressure. So I can fix it myself because it's, oh, this is something that I did. And there's like a lot of shame. Yeah. And it's really sad and damaging to think about how we use health as an indicator of value, just like how we will look at size as an indicator of health and value, which they're not indicators of those things. Yeah. 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 
Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When we were discussing this and thinking about everything that diets distract us from, it reminded me of your comments in your book about dieting, keeping us small. And what are your thoughts on that? And why is that important to take note of? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think dieting, it's, we're trying to shrink our bodies generally. Right. But in doing so, what are all the other things that we shrink or make ourselves smaller in so many other ways? And yeah, I think that what's been so awesome about this work is that when I first started doing it, I'm like, Oh, I'm going to be helping people with their relationship to food and be able to nourish themselves and things like that. And yes, we do that. But what blew my mind and continues to blow my mind is that every single person I work with that happens. And then, oh my gosh, so many other things in their life end up shifting partly because they're not using all that brain space thinking about food anymore, but also just like standing in their power and feeling like they don't have to shrink themselves, whether it's like at work or with what they wear or all these other places. A conversation, a group I run, we were having a conversation yesterday and one of them was saying something that this is affected that she like never thought of. She has a hobby that she loves, but she said, you know, usually when people are like, oh, what are your hobbies? I immediately say, oh, well, it's really boring, but I like doing X, Y, Z thing. And she's like, why do I say that? This is what I love. Like, why do I feel like I have to justify this type of thing? Someone else was talking about wearing a crop top out and just like loving this like crop top. And she's in a larger body and she's like, I would have never worn this before. Now, not only am I wearing it, but I'm like feeling like really hot and feeling like just going and dancing and like making new friends. And so when we stop trying to shrink our bodies, we also, the space opens up for us to get Mm -hmm. more clear on, on who we are and to be able to really embrace who we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's telling to me that diet culture is also known to be kind of this control piece on women, right? Like it's kind of a control tactic in a way where women were meant to direct their focus on staying small, focusing on only looks, appearance, size, and not much else. And do you feel like that was intentional or is that like due to capitalism? I think all these different systems like capitalism, we live in a patriarchal society where men have always held the majority of the power. We see this with people who are in power, right? Once you're in power, you don't want to give that power up. And so what do you do with that power? You try to like keep people push down below you. And so, yeah, I think it's really interesting. This was something that the book, The Beauty Myth talked about was how in 19th and 20th centuries, like every time women were starting to gain power in society, there was like a new beauty ideal or body ideal and like Mm -hmm. ad campaigns about voluptuous women. Then it's like, nope, like back to being like twiggy and like ageism and like, now you got to color your hair and just all of these things that to keep 
women on this like hamster wheel of feeling like they have to chase these different things in order to be accepted and respected. So yeah, I think all of these different systems really play into it. And another amazing book, I'm not sure if you've read or talked about on the podcast before, but Fearing the Black Body by Mm -hmm. Sabrina Strings. That was also really eye-opening to me of just like how far back these like body ideals go and the racist roots of fat phobia and anti-fat bias and how it was started as a way to like other black people and to white women. I actually heard Sabrina speak last week at a a conference and she was an online conference, but still it was very cool to hear her speak. But yeah, she was talking about how I was like, okay, white women, you don't want to be like this. We're better than this. So that's where there's also classism at play here too, right? So there's all of these different systems of oppression that are like interplaying racism, sexism, classism that are like interplaying in mm-hmm. what we now know as diet culture. Mm-hmm. And all of those systems really help us build a sense of understanding and self-compassion for like why we might hate our bodies, distrust our bodies, want to change them because the messages that these systems have placed on us without our permission. and it's really eye-opening when you can start peeling back those layers and seeing, okay, like these weren't beliefs that I took on with my like consent. It's really things that I was expected to believe and took on through. Yeah. You're, and I loved how you said like self-compassion, because I think this is where when folks are able to zoom out and, and understand that bigger picture, a yes, hundred percent, like helping people have compassion for themselves. Okay. No wonder why you struggle with this or feel this way. Also with part of self-compassion being common humanity, if you're not alone in this struggle, like other people are going through the exact same thing. And, and also too, to just, I know for a lot of the people I work with to understand this bigger picture has been really helpful for their own recovery because they're like, this is so much bigger than me. And I don't want to be a cog in these systems of oppression. I want to be able to like step outside of this. And yeah, then I think that's why a lot of people who do this work and a lot of people who kind of have their own journey with it, it ends up being like seeds of this spread everywhere, right? Like I was talking to another client of mine who has been doing this work for maybe like six months or so. And she was telling me about a conversation she had with her daughter, who I think is like 10 or 11. And I haven't specifically sat my daughter down and talked to her about this, but she obviously just like, here's how I'm talking about things differently now. And they just had this like really incredible conversation. I think it was around like Kim Kardashian. And I was like, yeah, that's not real. You know, no one's supposed to look like, and like just this whole thing. And she was like, whoa, she's thinking so much more critically than I was at that age. And because she now has a mom who's like, talking differently about her body and things like that. So yeah, I think it's so much bigger than us. And we all have this role that we can play in hopefully over time, taking down these systems of oppression. Yeah. It's really inspiring to hear that story of the little girl who is actually thinking really critically. That's something that's been completely forgotten about. Critical thinking was not on my radar when I had an eating disorder. And it was not on my radar probably till way after the eating disorder recovery for sure. But that's part of why I love to bring up these themes on the podcast is because we need to start thinking critically and thinking about 
things outside of ourselves, outside of our bodies that could have had an impact on the way we think, feel, and even move in our bodies. So yeah, that's really amazing. And just, it's funny you bring that up because when I reflect back onto high school, I always was very annoyed when people would bring up the media as something that impacted my body image or that impact body image. I Mm -hmm. I didn't want that to apply to me. Mm -hmm. And looking back now, I'm like, wow, the media was such a huge component in how I saw myself. And it was, I just find it interesting how there was that conflict inside of me. I did not want Mm. to accept that I was so manipulated by it. Yeah. I think that makes sense, right? Because we want to feel like we're making these decisions. And I've had conversations like this with friends who are like, well, no, I love wearing makeup and this is why I'm doing it. I'm like, yeah, cool. Totally, totally. And then I had the same friend kind of come back to me like maybe a year or two later and was like, I think I'm getting what you're saying. Like I do wearing makeup and I do following those trends and... I have a really hard time not wearing makeup and like still feeling okay. I feel like I have to look a certain way. And I was like, yeah, it's like really interesting. And yeah, to me, I feel like that's a great example. I know for me, anytime I feel defensive with something now, I'm like, Ooh, here's a place to get more curious. Right. Before it was like, no, like you said, like push back and especially right. Like high school and teenager, that's like hallmark of that time period in our lives. But yeah, now I'm like, Ooh, feeling defensive. What might be going on? Yes, it's such a helpful indicator, right? When you're feeling defensive or these emotions come up that are uncomfortable, they make you angry. Maybe there is some part of you that believes whatever was just presented to you, right? If someone were to, I guess, if you're having those reactions, there's got to be a part of you that needs to unpack that and find peace behind whatever that is. Yeah, I agree. So Alyssa, I just wanted to say thank you so much for joining me today on this episode of the show. And do you have any final words of wisdom or advice for those with eating disorders? Because this is mainly an eating disorder recovery show. Yeah, I would just say, keep going. I know there are different sort of stages of recovery and people are like, oh, well, this is so much better than it was. And yes, but it will keep getting better. And Mm -hmm. I just see this both recovery, you know, but also just our evolution, like as people, right? Like it just keeps getting better. And if you're willing to like question things and think about things and sit with those uncomfortable feelings, like it gets better eating a hundred percent will become easier. And there's just so much more out there after that too. Mm. Yes. Thank you for sharing that. I love it when I can see clients make progress and then see their world change in a really beautiful way. And that motivates them to keep going. When you finally feel and experience those positive moments with your body or with food, you're like, I'm not letting this go. I better not revert back to the old ways. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All right. So how can people find you online in case they want to work with you or familiarize themselves with what you do? Sure. So you can check out my website, which is alyssarumsey.com. My book that you mentioned earlier is called Unapologetic Eating, and it's available wherever books are sold and really, yes, dives 
so much more into a lot of the stuff that we talked about today. And then you can also find me on Instagram at Alyssa Rumsey RD. Woohoo. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Alyssa. I appreciate you being here and I hope you have a beautiful day. Thanks so much, Meg. Thanks so much for having me. 